Women's Health Melbourne is a boutique, specialist fertility and women's health practice, caring for women at all life stages. We're proud to provide world-class holistic medical care, including IVF and a range of other fertility treatments. We provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our two Melbourne locations are in Fitzroy and our new state-of-the-art Caulfield practice. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and you can follow both Women's Health Melbourne and Dr Rayleigh Alou on the socials. Dr. Lara Freeman is a specialist upper gastrointestinal and general surgeon with extensive experience in the most current minimally invasive techniques for both bariatric and general surgery. Trained in undergraduate medicine at Monash University, Lara graduated with honours in 2006 before entering the specialist general surgical training program at the Alfred. Welcome Lara, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Well, yeah, do you want to talk us through why you thought it would be a good idea for Lara to come on the podcast? Yeah, well, I thought that it would be really great to have Lara on the podcast today because weight loss surgery is such a niche area. And in medicine, we learn very little about it. In gynecology, I certainly learned very little about it. But it's one way that a lot of patients who have real difficulty in managing a weight problem that's really either getting them down, affecting them metabolically or contributing to their lifetime medical risk can actually get on top of the problem. And it can sometimes seem quite radical, but it actually can be the right thing for some people. So I thought that it would be great for our listeners to hear a bit more about what that area of medicine is all about. And I thought who better to talk to us about it than Lara? It definitely does sound like a dramatic course of action. Lara, do you want to talk us through how you became a bariatric surgeon and what led, what led you to that? That's a good question. Um, it's interesting that Rayleigh said it's not something we learn very much about at, at uni and then through the beginnings of our medical career. It seems that it's something I was always exposed to. So uh, I, I guess my training was a little bit different to yours, obviously. Um, but basically from first year uni, from the first time we learned anatomy, from learning dissection, I knew I wanted to be a surgeon. So in my brain, anatomy made sense. It was the same in everyone. It's a problem. We can operate on it. We can fix it. And the patient goes home with a solution relatively quickly, which always appealed to me. And then once I got into the surgical program, general surgery, so that's surgery in the abdomen essentially was very appealing to me because again it made a lot of sense it was very interesting there's a lot of different pathologies that can happen within the abdomen and then I was quite lucky to be an intern and then a surgical trainee at the Alfred which is one of the centers in Melbourne that does do bariatrics just does weight loss surgery so I was fortunate enough to have a lot of exposure to that throughout my training Um, and again that type of surgery as well as general surgery was very appealing because as you said at the beginning, there's a very large population who have this lifelong struggle with what's essentially a chronic disease, which is obesity that has lifelong complications. Um, I was exposed to this treatment uh, management plan or treatment uh, option 
that allowed us to treat the problem, help the patients get the, the weight down and have a lifelong result that was quite positive for a lot of them. So that was a very appealing thing for myself and thankfully that's where I've ended up with my training. It's amazing. We've actually got a lot in common and also not that much in common <laughs> because yeah. one thing we both have in common was that we both chose an area really quickly in medicine yep. and just went for it. Uh, I felt exactly the same about reproductive medicine and even before I'd finished my medical school training, I decided I was going to go there and I think that really is a common theme in doctors who are very passionate about the area they work in. They can find it quite quickly and, and have personality traits that really propel them in that direction. Yeah, I de definitely agree with that and I could probably say the same. I've had very little exposure to obstetrics, gynecology and fertility medicine, but I'm glad there are people like yourself around who can specialise in it and then we can work together for these patients who need our help, well, both of our help sometimes. Tell us a little bit about your experience, Lara, as specifically, before we move on to, to talk about the details of the surgical approach, your experience as a woman going through surgical training, because I find that I get really a lot of kind of conflicting stories about kind of the fact that surgical training can be a little bit more challenging for women, mainly because we enter our reproductive years during our specialty training. What was your experience in surgical training? Um, my experience, again, I think has been relatively unique compared to a lot of people, a lot of colleagues I've spoken to. I was lucky I had my first child during training and my second child just at the end of training. Um, and, again, I did all my training through Alfred Health, through the Alfred Hospital, where our surgical supervisor, her name was a, a surgeon called Kate Martin, who's amazing, and we used to call it, uh, the Alfred used to have Kate's pregnancy chair because I think there was almost no female surgical trainee who went through without intentionally or accidentally falling pregnant. I was intentional, I'd like to say. <laughs> um, but we were quite unique in that we were very well supported. It was always something that was not necessarily encouraged, but certainly not frowned upon. It was just something that was part of life. Um, and I was given all the opportunity to do that, which was fantastic. So I know there's lots of stories of discrimination and bullying and whatnot uh, elsewhere, but we were very lucky in my training and I was I did not experience anything like that, which is great. That's great. So as an institution, that's obviously a shining example. And I actually found a very similar experience at the Royal Women's Hospital, that it was very family-friendly and inclusive and bent over backwards to really try and achieve equality for female doctors in specialty training, which is amazing. And I've also had variable experiences in other centres throughout my trainings in um, interstate and also in terms of applying for training internationally. And so I think we really have to look after our trainees as our mentors looked after us and probably a bit better than other people's mentors looked after them in medicine. Yeah, I think, as you said, our, our age group have benefited from the struggles of the age groups before us and then certainly I've now had two trainees, two of my registrars come through who have been pregnant while I've been working with them and I fully encourage that. Obviously, I've gone through it myself. So that's been really great and I think more and more that's been accessible and available to people. So, Lara, can you tell us a little bit about what kind of patient comes to see you to talk about bariatric surgery and where have they been before they've got to your office? 
Um, yeah, it's really a mixed bag um, of who comes to see me. Certainly being a female who works in a relatively male-dominated profession, I do mainly get females coming to see me, which is fine. I'm happy to treat everyone. The abdomen's the same once I do the operating, but I'm, I'm more than happy to see either sex. But um, I think that self-selects a little bit. And it can be anywhere. I think the youngest person who's come to see me was 17 and the oldest was probably late 60s and everything in between. And people come for a variety of reasons, uh, it being from general struggling with weight loss for a long time to being referred from other specialists for long-term medical problems. Often it's brittle diabetes or other obesity-related problems. People have occasionally, or not occasionally sometimes had surgery before and they're looking for either further surgery or a second opinion. Other people have just been Googling it or researching themselves for a long time. It's actually quite unusual for a GP to refer the patient to me. It's often they're either self-referring after doing a lot of research online um, or with friends um, or they're being referred by subspecialists who are worried about a, a comorbidity of some sort. Why do you think GPs are hesitant to refer? Yeah, I don't think they're necessarily hesitant to refer, but I think it's often uh, almost a taboo subject that's difficult to bring up in a very mm. short, you know, 15, 20-minute GP consult where there's often other issues for which the patient has sought their medical, um, you know, for their expertise. And so to then bring up, you know, pointing out someone's body habitus and bringing up the idea of referring and getting help for that, that's probably a difficult conversation to have and often something that's not got a lot of time for. So if the patient brings it up, GPs are often obviously happy to provide the referral, but I don't think it really uh, instigated by them yeah and I guess it's it seems quite radical in terms of all of the interventions that are available to assist in weight loss to go to surgery however many people who do go to surgery have tried a lot of other things first haven't they yeah and I suppose I'm not sure that I'd classified as something that's radical but I guess because I'm in it I see it quite differently to people who think of surgery as a radical thing in general it's certainly, it used to be considered more high risk. It's certainly a very safe thing to do. It's well researched. It's got very good uh, side effect profiles. It's got very minimal risk profiles. Um, and as you say, no one comes to see me really having not tried diet, exercise and lifestyle changes for at least many months, but often for years and years. And, and most people tell me for as long as they can remember, they've you know had struggles with either diet or have been on a diet, have thought about weight, have been you know, struggling with this problem. So when it comes to a lifelong struggle, uh, having surgery to me is not particularly a radical decision. Rather, it's just using a tool that's available in medicine to, to provide that extra service. When I think of bypass or lap band or the surgeries, um, I think of someone as being like the patient as being huge, like 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 can't get through their door, huge. But that's not the case. Obese is actually not so big, is it? Yeah, I suppose that is quite an extreme view of of what a potential patient might be. So Australian guidelines or international guidelines say that uh, bariatric surgery, weight loss surgery is available to anyone who has a BMI of 35 or above or if they have a BMI between 30 and 35 with obesity-related comorbidity. So that's medical problems related to their obesity such as sleep apnea, diabetes, blood pressure problems, cardiovascular issues, and there's a whole list and so on. 
but really, so BMI is a ratio, for those who don't know, is a ratio of uh, taking someone's weight and comparing it to their height. So really, for someone who's not very tall, um, it's, you don't need very much weight to tip that BMI into that obese or morbidly obese category. And really, in our society, we have you know quite a calorie-dense, obesogenic society where it's not unusual to see people who are larger walking down the street. So our kind of view of what an average sized person or a healthy sized person is, is probably warped somewhat by what is just available in society to observe, as you've just said. So Lara, you said before you made the comment that surgery for weight loss in your mind is not extreme. And it made me think that people also probably feel the same in my field. There's a lot of people who think IVF is pretty extreme. And Mm. whereas I think IVF is not that extreme. So I probably feel exactly the same way about my field yeah I imagine people access access your services quite late having almost shamed themselves for a long time I think I can do it for myself for such a long time whereas to I don't know but to you I imagine you just think but there's help out there why haven't you come to see me which is the same that's how I feel about bariatrics and so could you walk us through like if and I know that simplistic because there's lots of different procedures that you might do but from the patient's perspective if they had this problem that they really tried to shift a lot of weight and, and everybody's telling them to lose weight, their GP's telling them to lose weight, you know, the, the whole world's telling them to lose weight, yep. their fertility doctor's telling them to lose weight. Yep. And Which is a really common door. story, all of those things, yeah. Really common. And, you know, they come to your door and, and you have a chat to them about surgery and they're, they're thinking about going through surgery. What kind of experience and what kind of downtime is there for a patient like that in terms of going through surgery? Yes, good question. And I think a lot of people are reluctant to make an appointment because they feel that once they even come and talk to a surgeon, they have to have surgery. And I like to make it clear to everyone, I'm more than happy to just have a chat about options. So the first time I meet a patient, we don't commit to anything. We simply have a chat about who they are, what problems they've had along the way, their medical health, what they'd like to achieve out of, you know, using my services. And we talk about the potential journey of of their weight loss journey of how it would go from there. And we talk about, as you said, the different types of surgery and which one might be appropriate to themselves, depending on what other medical problems and surgical history they have. And then we don't commit to anything until they see the rest of the team, essentially. So... By the rest of the team, I mean I work with a dietitian who doesn't talk just about general dietetics for them but talks to them specifically about how life would change during around surgery time and how life could change long-term after having had surgery. I get everyone to see a psychologist that I work with. Again, not because I think anyone's crazy, no one's got any problems particularly. I like to point that out to people that I'm not judging them. It's more so that we can make sure that people are setting realistic goals as to what we're going to achieve out of weight loss, out of weight loss surgery. And also to make sure that I'm not taking by stopping someone's ability to self-soothe by using food. I don't want to drop them into a deep, dark hole where they can't basically assist themselves. So they go and talk to the, the psychologist about those things. And depending on how old they are and what medical problems they have, they may often need to see a physician as well to have things like heart checks, breathing checks, um, sleep studies and whatnot. And that's all to make sure that anaesthetic is safe around the time of surgery. So, so it's kind of a full checkup you know psychological dietetic and physical checkup to see the fitness of the patient and to make sure they're actually right for surgery and helps to de- tell us what type of surgery is right 
So that all can take a few weeks or a few months, depending on the patient's desire. Once we do all of that, we also always do a gastroscope on patients. So that's a camera down the mouth and into the stomach to have a look inside and make sure everything's healthy on the inside. And that can, again, help tell us what type of surgery is appropriate um, to that patient. Once all that's done, we then have another chat. We decide what surgery is appropriate. And only then do we come to actual surgery, which I think what you're actually asking me about, how long does surgery take? Yeah, so how long how how long would your average operation take in a weight loss surgery? Uh, so it depends what we do, but uh, generally all the surgeries are done laparoscopically, so that's by keyhole surgery. It's all under full general anaesthetic, so fully asleep, they don't feel any pain, they don't remember anything. And then depending on what it is, it can take anywhere from an hour to three, four hours, depending on what surgery we're doing. Most people stay in hospital for at least two days, but up to about four days. That's usually determined by how much pain they're in and how nauseous they feel afterwards because everyone feels quite nauseous after we manipulate the stomach in some way. And then I let them go home essentially when they're walking around, can tolerate oral intake. It's usually just fluids and when they feel comfortable, so anywhere between two and four days. And usually I recommend people to stay at home for about two weeks afterwards. So... They're usually fine walking around, can tolerate their oral intake and can often drive around, but their bodies are changing rapidly. So that's why I tell people just take two weeks for yourself, get your own eating under control, make sure you're comfortable before you try and get back to the busy lifestyle of caring for other people and going into work where you might not be making the best food choices for your new new stomach. What does it feel like, Lara, during those two weeks of recovery for patients? Not Not the physical surgical recovery, but when things are changing quickly most people are extremely positive during that time they all come and say to me the first 24 48 hours was terrible and then I felt great Um, and I was surprised by how easy it was they are surprised by how little pain there is and how quickly they're back on their feet and back to normal daily activities and they're all feeling quite positive because that's a point where there is rapid weight loss starting and there's a lot of positive feedback from getting on the scale and seeing that number drop they think, they think, yes, this was all worth it. So that's that's a really kind of state of flux and a lot of patients have a, a relatively good experience during that time. You mentioned, Lara, there are different types of surgery that you do. Mm-hmm. For someone who, for example, was thinking about weight loss for fertility reasons, maybe they've got polycystic ovaries and they're not ovulating mm-hmm. and they prefer to avoid assisted reproductive technologies or Maybe their doctors told them that they're too heavy to actually have treatment. I had a patient like that who unfortunately was clocking in at 150 kilos plus and that is above our guidelines to be able to offer many assisted reproductive treatments and it can actually be quite dangerous to perform some quite safe procedures for someone who has a more average BMI because we we rely a lot on ultrasound guidance for for lots of our our procedures in assisted reproductive therapies like IVF and when we can't see properly with ultrasound it can be really really difficult to safely conduct those procedures and we also have other issues in terms of our anaesthetic team not wanting to anaesthetize the patient and our theatre setup not being safe in terms of the equipment and the bed strength and so forth in the positions that we use for gynecological surgeries. There's all these different different reasons why those guidelines are what they are. Yeah, absolutely. 
what kind of surgery would you talk to that patient about and what would really be the most common types of operations that you could offer patients in that circumstance? Yeah, so the most common two surgeries I do are what's called a laparoscopic sleeve gastrectomy, or a lot of people have just heard that referred to as the sleeve, kind of if you Google um, or you're looking on social media or whatever your um, source is. Um, and the other one would be called the bypass or a laparoscopic gastric bypass. The absolute weight of the patient doesn't really determine which surgery I would choose. Um, it's more what are their other medical and surgical past history and what are their desires of what they want to achieve with weight loss. So no surgery doesn't have weight loss. So whatever we do, there's weight loss. And most are quite successful and significantly more so than diet and exercise alone. Um, I can never tell anyone exactly how much weight they're going to lose. But generally speaking, with the sleeve, we say people are going to lose about between 50 and 70% of their excess body weight. So that's everything above a normal BMI. Um, and with the bypass, it's probably slightly more than that, so 60 to 80% of their excess body weight. Specifically, if someone has had significant uh, abdominal surgery before, especially something around the stomach, like if they've had a lap band in the past or other interventions on their stomach, if they have severe reflux or if they have severe diabetes, those are all reasons to tend towards a bypass over a sleeve because we know that the bypass is more effective in treating those problems. Similarly, a lot of people do come to me specifically asking for a sleeve because they know that that's less invasive and it's less changing to the actual structure of the gastrointestinal tract. Um, so the chance of things like malnutrition or long-term problems of things twisting and causing problems down the track is less with a sleeve. So if it was that patient you were telling me about specifically, that would be those questions that I'd be asking the patient to help determine which one we'd choose. And, and both of them would end up with weight loss and therefore hopefully would be more helpful for your procedure down the track. Once they've had the surgery, the recovery you said is about two weeks, but what if they then wanted to get pregnant? Yeah, really good question and obviously very appropriate to your listeners. Generally speaking, we recommend that patients don't fall pregnant during the time of rapid weight loss where there's um, significant change in the body. So that can be, for the first six months, that's very significant and there's a steep gradient that the patients tend to lose weight on and then that kind of plateaus out to a steady trickle down but it's no longer the significant weight loss over the next two years or so. But generally speaking, I do recommend that patients don't fall pregnant during that first two years. Um, and Raylia and I were actually talking about this the other day in theatre, saying uh, she was saying how even after that first six months when the weight loss has happened, we can have things like egg harvest. And pl please make sure I'm using the right terminology. But you, you said that you can do things like freezing eggs and, and doing harvesting, which would be quite safe, and then waiting the further 18 months. Yeah, making embryos and, and just making sure that we've we've really set up for success because with, with IVF there's the two kind of holy grails or the two magic parts. There's the, the making of the embryo and then there's implantation into a healthy endometrium to make a pregnancy and you can't have a healthy baby unless you have both. And what we what we would worry about in terms of having a woman who is potentially losing weight rapidly, potentially to some extent not quite as well nourished as we would like her to be before a pregnancy, we might worry that 
if she did get pregnant, that baby might be compromised, its growth might be compromised, its placenta might be compromised. Absolutely. And likewise, I would I would say that if I had, and this is my, my common practice, is that every patient that I've treated through IVF who's had gastric surgery, I've involved a clinical nutritionist and they often have a clinical nutritionist already because it's really important to make sure that they're getting the right nutrition in pregnancy so that their baby can grow normally. I agree with you that that, that risk to the baby of being low for birth weight would be high in that first two years, which is why I would recommend not to fall pregnant in that time and to use a form of contraception during that time. So I guess that for a lot of your listeners who are potentially a little bit older, that idea of waiting two years can be quite frightening, which would mean that I'd, I would say access whatever healthcare you can or come and access an opinion sooner rather than later so that time doesn't get away from us. Yeah, and the other thing to say is that while two years does seem like a long time, a lot of patients who do suffer from anovulatory infertility where they don't release an egg associated with being very overweight, they often are at a younger age. Often it's not age-related infertility that's brought them to me. It's the fact that they're not releasing an egg. So while they may want to be pregnant immediately, they do technically often have time. And I would also say that it's not only women. Men who are seriously overweight can have serious sperm problems relating to obesity. So when you do have really quite a serious case of obesity, from the sperm-making perspective, often you have quite high estrogens for a man because of the uh, adipose tissue, which is fat tissue, which is not a benign tissue, it's a hormonal tissue. So there's a lot of estrogens that are around in the form of estrone, and that can affect the capacity to make sperm. And I often find that men who are seriously overweight do have poor sperm function and poor sperm production. It's also because of the fact that they can be, apart from being what we call relatively hypogonadal because of the excess estrogen and low testosterone, we also find that you can also have temperature regulation concerns in the testis because the testes do like to be about two degrees cooler than the rest of the body and that's another concern that can happen with obesity in men. So it's not just the women that can be affected, it's also men. And unlike a woman who has to carry the baby, on the other side, in terms of male fertility and improving that, actually that's pretty quick because it takes about 70 days to make sperm. So after that rapid weight loss time, the sperm can significantly improve. Yeah, I've, n- I've never to be honest, thought about it from a male point of view, but that all makes a lot of sense and I would not put any time restriction on a male patient as to when they would want to go ahead and and be part of a fertility process. Yeah, and reproduction, that's true of a lot of things. The male side of it is a little bit unfairly easy compared to the female in most domains. (laughs) Don't we know it? (laughs) Could having have the surgery, could that affect the ability to carry a pregnancy? Uh, It generally doesn't. Um, So it's a good question. A lot of people are worried that they're having surgery on their abdomen and then the ability to then have a a pregnant uterus afterwards. The surgery we do is very much at the top half of the abdomen, so right under the ribs on the left-hand side, which is very far away from the uterus. Because it's all done by keyhole surgery, there's very little scar tissue and very little that would affect the ability of the uterus to grow and have space within the abdomen. Of course, 
weird and wonderful things can happen in any surgery in any pregnancy but as a general rule um, it is quite safe to fall pregnant after any abdominal surgery any bariatric surgery in the abdomen i've got another question for you lara so we eat for nutrition but we also eat for pleasure and you know we all get a lot of pleasure from our diet and from food and it's also a very social thing although not not actually I went to a cafe for the first time since COVID this morning for breakfast which was really fun was it weird yeah so I was gonna say it's, it's a social thing to go out for food but maybe not so much recently but in terms of eating it is very social and and it's a way that we communicate it's a way that we seek pleasure what's the experience of someone who's had gastric sleeve surgery in the long term, what's their, what's their experience with food and what, what can they eat and what can't they eat? Yeah, it's a good question again and it's, it's a very common question that I get from patients. And as a general rule, around the perioperative time, so around the time of the surgery and in the few weeks afterwards, yes, there are some significant restrictions about what you can eat, specifically the textures of what you can eat. So we start on fluids only, then we upgrade to what we call thickened fluids and then going to mushy stuff and well-chewed foods. Um, and that's usually very much around the time of the surgery itself. Looking long-term, there's almost nothing you can't eat long-term. It's more about making good choices on a, on a daily basis. And then when you do make the choices to make sure it's all about portion control and then about texture when something's swallowed as well. So it is gone are the days of the mindless, oh, I'm in a rush, just grab something, have a quick bite of it chuck it down quickly, maybe with a drink quickly and then move on because that would make someone feel quite sick and be quite uncomfortable. Whereas um, any food eaten mindfully, which is something that my dietitian speaks a lot to the patients about, so making sure that food is well chewed, it's well prepared, well chewed, swallowed slowly and then a break taken before the next bite is taken to allow that feeling of satiety to come so you know when you're full and not to push it beyond that. If we're being mindful about that kind of thing, there's absolutely nothing that really can't be had in the long term. Um, Specifically, as you said, with going out, being social with friends, um, we talk a lot about food peace as well and being not feeling guilty about having that piece of birthday cake or having the one thing that you, whatever it is that you want on that special occasion, especially when it's something social or something that's being done for comfort, but not to... A, give yourself a hard time about that thing, but also B, not make that decision on a daily basis to then participate in something like that. And that, again, is something that my dietitian and psychologist spend a lot of time talking to patients about. That's good advice for everyone, not just bariatric surgical candidates. Absolutely, and it's it's difficult to adhere to. I agree for, for all of us, but it's something totally. <laughs> Raylia, you mentioned earlier about weight loss surgery helping with um, polycystic ovarian syndrome. I was just wondering, is there other other positive effects that, that, or other benefits you can experience from the weight loss surgery, other conditions it can treat? Well, certainly the effects are also good for obstetrics because when when we do have an extreme obesity in pregnancy, there's a whole heap of things. Some of them are also general risk factors, but there's a whole heap of things that are more common. So things like having high blood pressure in pregnancy, things like having a heart attack while pregnant, because we've got to remember pregnancy, it's very normal, but it's a physiological major strain on the body. And if our bodies are already strained because we're carrying a real amount of extra weight, then we are putting ourselves at risk. We're using up our physiological reserve 
before we have to worry about the extra burden that the pregnancy places on our bodies. So other things like, for example, you have an increased risk of high blood pressure and, and an increased risk of preeclampsia. You have an increased risk of gestational diabetes and having a baby that is what we call macrosomic, which is a baby that's bigger than it should be genetically because of its environment of having excess nutrition. Conversely, we worry when you've had surgery that you might have a baby that's small for, for kind of its gestational age and have placental insufficiency. So there's both ends of the spectrum there. But also just things like monitoring a woman in labor, examining a woman in labor. If a woman needs a cesarean, how safe is that cesarean? It's always safer if a woman has a normal spectrum BMI. So all of these things are, you know, impacted. You don't have to have polycystic ovaries to be overweight or obese. And there's plenty of people around who have PCOS who are completely normal BMI and they still have PCOS. So that's called lean PCOS. So it's not like you have to kind of have PCOS to be overweight. You have to be overweight to have PCOS. It doesn't happen that way. And there's lots of people in our society who, for whatever reason, be it that they've got a genetic predisposition our lifestyle factors in the Western world where we do have easy access to excess energy and often are quite sedentary in our lifestyles. We get in the car instead of walking. You know, we don't have time for exercise because we have lives that are very demanding. A lot of work is online, so people are sitting for a lot of the day. Uh, there's so many factors. And so really across the board, all of these things apply for women with any condition. And of course, 50% of infertility is malfactor. So it might be incidental to the reason that they're infertile as well. I've got another question for you, Lara. This is a little bit out of left field and probably not so relevant to people who are currently thinking about getting pregnant or pregnant already. But what about alcohol? If you have had gastric surgery, does that mean that your tolerance to alcohol is changed moving forward or is it the same? Um, yeah, not such a left field question. I get that question quite commonly from patients wanting to know, which is very reasonable. I'd probably want to know that answer too. Um, and the answer is pro probably multifactorial. So to start with, we think of alcohol as a calorie dense fluid as well. So to start with, when we're looking to restrict calories or to make sensible decisions, it is something that I recommend that people avoid to start with. Similarly, because they're avoiding it for a while, usually a number of weeks, if not for a number of months, um, tolerance in general would go down. Um, and then with weight loss, yes, tolerance also goes down because with increased weight, there's increased ability to absorb and, and handle an, an amount of alcohol that's gone in. So generally speaking, like I recommend to patients with any surgery is to take it easy and to very much see how their bodies are guiding them. So yes, they're likely to be more susceptible to the effects of alcohol immediately following the, the period of not having anything after the surgery. But that's, I guess, an added benefit. Absolutely. Does anyone regret having surgery or do you find most people are very happy they did it? Uh, I'd say probably from my experience, most people, so probably more than 80, 90% of people are very happy after the surgery. Unfortunately, as I'm sure you find in your practice as well, we, we can never have a hundred percent guarantee of happy patients afterwards. Um, and that's multifactorial about how much weight, how much absolute weight someone's lost, whether it's actually affected their comorbidities the way we want it to afterwards. And also that's why I spend a lot of time before the surgery 
myself and my psychologist going through goal setting and wanting to know that we're on the same page of what we're going to achieve with whatever surgery it is. So I, I spent a lot of time saying things like, you know, none of us are ever going to be like we were when we were 16 or 18. We're never going to get to a size 6, size 8 or even you know, size 10. What we can look at is things like reversing the amount of medications someone's taking, reversing the amount of things like knee pain or ability to exercise or spend time with children running around, so those kind of things. I've had one patient come to me with a very specific list of, of things she'd like to achieve, which one of them, you know, something I've not seen before, but she'd been given a, um, a flight on a helicopter as a birthday present and, and at her weight at that time she didn't qualify to get on she was too large to be on the helicopter so her goal was to be able to drop enough weight to take that helicopter ride which I think is very reasonable but it's also a short-term goal like we were we worked on having more long-term goals beyond that so we spend a lot of time making sure things are realistic and we document them so that if people are not so happy afterwards or once they've achieved a certain amount of weight loss that can almost become addictive and people want to always do more and more and more afterwards we take pains to kind of go back at that to that original conversation and say here's what we wanted to achieve this is what we've gotten to so far let's kind of reframe that perspective a little bit and hopefully we can get satisfaction for most people unfortunately things like complications do happen as as anything in medicine complications can happen which can change someone's journey or change someone's perspective someone's perspective of their journey and that's something that we have to deal with as it arises depending on what the problem is I would think that like when people come to see Raylia, they just wish they'd come to you sooner. A lot of people do say to me, I don't know why I waited so long. It wasn't as scary as I thought it was. It wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be. And it's not as invasive as I thought it was going to be. So it's it's more to, you know, most often, like I said, greater than 90% of the time, uh, it's people saying things like, I I wish I'd done it sooner or it was easier than I thought it would be. Lara? Thank you so much. This has been fascinating. I think a lot of people like me think this is big and scary and not open to them, but actually it's quite approachable and accessible. Thank you so much for joining us. Where can our listeners find out more about you? That's fine. Thank you for having me. I've I've enjoyed this. It's my first podcast and I have thoroughly enjoyed it. So my practice name is Women's Weight Loss Surgery. Um, so I'm in southeast Melbourne and my rooms are at Holmes Glen Hospital and Masada Hospital. So they can find us at womensweightlosssurgery.com.au or can call us on 8060-6694 and make an appointment through that or they can jump on the website and, and send through a, a request. And you can follow Lara on the socials at Women's Weight Loss. That's it as well. Thank you very much. Thank you.